Good morning, church. Our reading today is from Colossians, chapter 1, verses 13 through to 23. See, everyone's grabbing the Bibles are in front of me. Okay. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. So in that everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to, it, to every creature under heaven and to which I, Paul, have become a servant. Well, we're in uh, Colossians chapter 1. If you could uh, open your Bibles there, that would be good. I'm, I'm sure that uh, it's the same in Tasmania as it is on the North Island, um, I've been told to call it that, not the mainland, the North Island. Um, that I wonder, do you feel, as I do, that our society is collectively walking away from its biblical Christian roots? Uh, it's disturbing, and I think the reason it's disturbing is what we see happening is um, truth is being untethered from reality. Uh, it's not... No longer, it's no longer just sufficient to know what is true. It's actually more important what do you feel is true. Uh, I think it's, it's illustrated writ large in the whole gender debate. What I feel I am trumps what I actually am. It's strange. It's disturbing, isn't it? You kind of, what's, what's going on there? Uh, I, Robin and my wife and I, Robin's here, I'd, I don't know if I mentioned you, honey. My wife, Robin's here. Sorry about that. Um, we recently watched a documentary uh, on... as a Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. Has anyone seen that? Can I encourage you with your teenage kids to watch it? It's about social media. Uh, all the architects of social media are, are interviewed in this uh, documentary. They talk about how they manipulate the truth to meet the market. So what do they need to know is true, not what is true? 
uh, all of them, I'd say bar none, say that they no, they no longer know what the truth is. One woman who worked for Google said that Google no longer has a concept of truth. And when you think that social media influences roughly three, three billion people in the world, you think, wow. In influenced by people who don't know what the truth is. So I don't know about you, I find it a bit disturbing and we're living, we're living with it and we're trying to adjust to it. And I guess a grumpy old bloke like me could go on all day about this kind of stuff. But I want to stop and say that there's actually nothing new under the sun. It is at the heart of the human fallen condition that we lose sight of or we reject the truth for a feeling which is probably a lie. That's where Adam and Eve went wrong. Um, did God really say? They felt that maybe he didn't when he actually did. Is it really true? See, that's always been the question. Well, that's our crazy post-Christian pagan world. We're kind of moving into paganism. Let me take you back to um, the pre-Christian crazy pagan world of first century Colossi. Um, the Colossian Christians face the same problem we face, and that is that the truth was up for grabs. They lived in a world that believed in almost anything. And the particular problem they, they seemed to, to face was what they called syncretism. Uh, people in the Christians in Colossians were being encouraged to add to Jesus some Judaism, some uh, mysticism, some Greek philosophy, and sort of drop them all in this big spiritual blender and hit, you know, hit go, and then just swallow whatever comes out. That's syncretism. And so it was confusing, it was troubling, uh, particularly for these new believers. So Paul writes to them to encourage them with the truth of the gospel. Um, and the, the truth of the gospel, really what our passage tells us this morning is, the truth of the gospel is that truth is located in, it's lodged in reality. In Jesus, we have divine, eternal truth, completely part of our reality. God becomes flesh. And, and it's a very encouraging thing for us because in this world where the truth is untethered, Christianity is actually completely coherent. There's no dualism. There's no separation between truth and reality. So that's kind of Paul's message. Um, verse 11, I think, helps us see what this, what he's saying, how it helps us. Just look at verse 11. He says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. That's why he's writing, see? He's writing them to anchor them back in the truth so that they'll, be, they'll, have, um, they'll be strengthened, they'll have endurance, patience and joy and that's my purpose this morning i want to encourage you i want to strengthen you by refocusing your attention on the truth of the gospel so that you will find endurance so that you'll find patience when you're frustrated with what's going on and that you'll find joy regardless of what's going on 
Well, looking mainly at verses 15 to 20, and they lay out the big, bold truth of the gospel, and it is that Jesus Christ is God. That's, that's a big truth, isn't it? Uh, basically, he says Jesus is our creator, verses 15 to 16, and Jesus is, our, is God our saviour, verses 19 to 20. So if you're into sermon outlines, taking notes, that's the sermon outline, Jesus is God the creator, Point one, point two, Jesus is God the Saviour. So let's think about what it means that Jesus is our creator. Now the idea of a creator in the ancient world wasn't new, it's not new now, but the idea that the creator could be known personally, that was, that was new. Um, he was thought to be unknowable. You could not know God. Um, but the idea that the creator would become knowable in human form, that he'd become actually part of his creation, was completely and totally radical. In fact, they thought it was foolishness. Ridiculous, they said. Paul's message is not only that Jesus was God the creator, um, but that he has become personally knowable in real human form. Look at verse 15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The world of first century was a world of myth and mysticism. Um, religious truth was separated from reality. And they liked it that way. They wanted to keep it that way. You could keep um, religious truth in the realm of ideas. Well, Jesus gate crashes the mystical party of ideas. <laughs> He breaks through and makes the unseen God seen and known. You can't get away with it, with stupid ideas about God. Jesus says, no. Jesus turns up and goes, no, 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 no. Focus on me. In Jesus' divine eternal truth um, came into real space and time, into reality. Uh, just cast your mind back as Christians it's a bit like this for us. In, in the Old Testament, at different times, God came and visited his people. They knew he was there because of the fire and the smoke and the thunder and the earthquakes. That seems to be what happens when God shows up. He's pretty big and awesome. But the fact is they didn't actually see God. No, they just saw the impact of his presence. Awesome and scary, Right? But they didn't actually see God. In fact, God explained to Moses, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. So by the time you get to the old, end of the Old Testament, we had no doubt that God was real. People had seen his power at work, but no one had actually seen him. No one had met him personally, fully. And Jesus changed all that. Verse 15 says that Jesus is the image that is the visible, physical, personal representation of God. John 1.18, it's a great verse. Um, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, that's Jesus, who is himself, who is himself God and with God, he has made him known. It's such a kind of a big idea that, isn't it? But we get into the Gospels and we see, no, that actually is what happened. So in John 14, 
I don't know if you remember it, but Jesus is with his disciples at this kind of awkward moment. You know, they're hanging out with Jesus, and Philip says, Jesus, just show us the Father. What he's actually saying is, look, it's really good hanging out with you, Jesus. We think you're awesome. But what we really want to know is God. Can you just show us God the Father? Then we'll have made it. Then, then it's, the job's done. And Jesus' reply is so simple that we can miss the enormity of it. He says, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God, because Jesus is God. God is, was with them in the room. That's, that's a big thought, isn't it? The Christians in Colossae were being taught that Jesus wasn't enough. The fallen, complete... Um, Spiritual experience needed more. You needed, you know, it's like the, the TV salesman. No, no, but, but wait, there's more, you know. Uh, there's, there's upgrades and additions. Paul says don't believe any of it for one second. There's no spiritual upgrade past Jesus. He's God. What do you need or want more than God himself? And if Jesus is God, then that means that he's bigger than any problem or doubt that you ever face. That's what the passage says, verse 15. He's the firstborn over all crea creation. Now, that's not talking about the order of his birth, like, you know, he was born before anyone. It's, it's actually talking about his rank. It comes from Psalm 89, verse 27 means that Jesus is the highest ranking one in creation. He's greater than any other great one you can think of. You know, you, you tell me the, the great ones of the world, well, Jesus is higher, more powerful. As God in the flesh, Jesus has what verse 18 says is supremacy or preeminence, the one who ranks first. And we know what supremacy is, because we've all watched the Bourne Supremacy, haven't we? The, the blokes have. Has the girls watched the women watch the Bourne Supremacy too? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, Jason Bourne is the supreme undercover agent, isn't he? There's all these other spies, you know, James Bond and all these sort of, all the rest. They just run a poor second to Jason Bourne. Doesn't matter how many bad guys turn up, Jason Bourne will always win. Why? Because he's supreme. Well, that's Jesus. Jesus is supreme. There is no one greater or better. Why is that? It's because he is God the creator. He's supreme over everything he created. And that's what the passage says. Just look at verses 16 to 17. It spells it out. For in him... And, and just note the word all. It's a little bit powerful word. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It really is breathtaking. I, I don't know whether you can get, gather your mind around this on Sunday morning. Um, it's such a big thing to think about. 
I mean, I've had the advantage of thinking about this. So I'm dialled in. Are you dialled in? How big this is? Whether you're looking at a distant star through a telescope or a human, I don't know, cell through a microscope, whether you're me measuring the distance, the size of it in light years or kilometres or metres or nanometers, Jesus created it all. Well, that's, that's about, well, you can't get any bigger than that. Paul is saying that there's nothing seen or unseen um, that existed before him, and having created everything, he, he sustains it. Whether it's a blue whale or a tadpole or a newly conceived child, Jesus is the one who sustains it. He made it all, he does it all, and so he is the supreme, the preeminent one. As you say you're a Christian and you say you believe in Jesus, do you believe that? Do you remember that? It's mind-boggling. That Jesus, that carpenter fellow from Nazareth, is the creator God. It is incomprehensible. I think I met Chris this morning. Over there, he tells me he's an electrician. Nice bloke, got some great kids. Imagine if I said Chris is God in the flesh. Chris is God the creator. Chris over there. You know, you go, that's ridiculous. He's Chris the electrician. He can't be. That's, that's stupid. Um, well, Jesus the carpenter fella was the creator God. Um, when we come to thinking about Jesus as God, we mustn't mistake our comprehension problem for a truth problem. They're not the same thing. The fact is we know and depend on all sorts of things we don't comprehend. Like, I don't comprehend Google. I don't comprehend how I can find something quicker on Google from the world than my computer can find it on itself. How, does that, how is that possible? Right? It happens all the time. I don't, I don't comprehend it. I don't understand it, but I depend on it all the time. I, I know nothing. I just Google it, right? Like, just like you. Um, so my comprehension problem doesn't stop me depending on it. Well, my in inability to comprehend that Jesus, the carpenter fellow from Nazareth, um, has, you know, that he's the creator, doesn't mean that it isn't true. It doesn't mean that I can't believe it. That's where the scriptures come in. That's where the gospels come in. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John take us with men and women just like us and they, we walk along and we see Jesus the creator at work. He could control storms. How and why? With a word. Well, because that's how he created it, by a word. He, he could control the demons, the spirit world. How and why? Well, the passage tells us that everything that is unseen was created by him. We think the demons were the fallen angels. We, who knows what they were? But Jesus has power over them. Jesus could give a man born blind his sight. No eyes, no, no sight. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the one who creates sight. He could, create, he could raise from the dead a rotting man named Lazarus because he was the one who gave Lazarus his life in the first place. He's supreme in all creation because he's God the creator. 
And verse 16 brings all these big truths. It brings, sort of brings home the bacon. It brings it home to each one of us. All things were created by him and for him. So everything was created by Jesus and for him. So what that means is that nothing is without purpose. Nothing is without meaning. You're not sure why you haven't got a senior pastor yet. Jesus knows, okay? He's got it covered. Jesus, the one we know and trust, made all things for his own good and righteous and trustworthy purposes. See, there's such a thing as purpose and meaning in life. But it can only be found in truth in the person of Jesus Christ because in Jesus, truth and reality come together. If you want to understand the purpose of your life, there's only one place to go. It's the one who created you for a purpose. And when you think about that, you understand that knowing your creator gives you a purpose to endure, gives you a reason for being patient through difficulty. And knowing that actually grows in you a joy. That only grows brighter as things get worse because you're in the hands of your creator. Well, then the passage goes from creation to salvation. It tells us that our creator became our saviour. The Bible tells us, um, plain and simple, that the spiritual beings and human beings that God created rebelled against him. There is evil in the cosmos, and we're part of it. We joined the rebellion. Verse 13 tells us that there is a kingdom of darkness in rebellion against God, and we humans joined that rebellion. We did it right back at the beginning. Verse 21 says, All of us at one time were alienated from God. We were his enemies. We lived um, in, in our evil behaviour. I wonder, do you have any doubt that that's the case? That there's evil in the cosmos, there's evil in the world, as you look around Launceston, as you look beyond. I wonder, do you have any doubt about your own sinfulness when you look inside yourself and see the ease with which you can revert to the worst version of yourself? It takes me about that long if the circumstances are right. I don't need, I don't need convincing that I'm, that I'm sinful. One thing that the Bible will not allow us to do is point at the evils and problems of our world without acknowledging that we're part of the problem too. We've got the same basic problem. See, all of us are headed for judgment and so all of us are in need of saving. We need a saviour. And despite the self-worship that our culture now practices, you know how, how we're all awesome? It's just, just amazing. Everyone's awesome, you know. We've just redefined awesome, really. Um, we cannot save ourselves. We're all headed for judgment. Other religions teach us that um, we can save ourselves. Robin and I were travelling with a Muslim taxi driver in Sydney and I've sort of got better at getting down to the nuts and bolts of what he believes. We got talking about redemption. 
I said, how do you find redemption? And he said, by practising the five pillars of Islam. See, his salvation, his redemption depended on his good works. He was saving himself. The Bible tells us the uncomfortable truth that our sin is so deeply embedded in us, our nature is so broken that only God our creator can redeem us. We cannot do it on our own. Psalm 49 verses 7 to 8. You ought to mark this in your Bible. This is what it says. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is too costly and can never suffice. You see, the price of our redemption is so high there's only one person can pay for it, and that is God the Creator. To pay that price, God had to become a man because of his merciful nature. God was willing to do that. The passage says that he was pleased. He was pleased to come and die and make peace through the cost of his own life on the cross. What a wonderful view of God. What a wonderful insight of God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're, you're wondering about God, understand he was pleased to become a person so he could die for you. Just follow along with me, verse 18 to 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now, the church are those who are Christians. They're gathered in Christ. That's what church means, it's a gathering. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God became a man to reconcile us by dying for us on the cross. What an enormous truth. It is as the firstborn from the dead that Jesus is our saviour. Because he lives, we live. Without Jesus, there's no redemption, no salvation, no reconciliation with God. Without Jesus, there can be no peace with God. That Muslim taxi driver is deceived by the teachings of Muhammad. If Jesus is not your head, not the one who you are living for, living with, living in. You cannot be reconciled. You cannot be at peace. Our challenge is that we live in a world that completely rejects Jesus. And so the spiritual battle rages and its effects are becoming more obvious as our culture, our society moves away from, from Christianity, I guess. Do you see, you simply have to take Jesus seriously. Jesus is the foundation of real forgiveness and reconciliation. So we shouldn't be surprised um, that forgiveness is gone, that cancel culture is in, in a culture that moves away from Jesus. Jesus' purpose was to come to seek and save the lost. We shouldn't be angry with those who reject him but endure their opposition, patiently keep pointing to Jesus with the joy of knowing him ourselves. 
Don't be angry with the world. Um, feel sorry for it. Be compassionate towards it. Take Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are so privileged because when you're cancelled, when life doesn't work out, when you catch COVID or whatever it is, remember what you know. Remember who you know. Remember what you believe. Remember who you believe in. You know God. What more do you want? <laughs> Jesus Christ, he's alive, he's redeemed you by personally paying the price of your arrogant rebellion. He's reconciled you to God, you're God's child. Yes, you live in a difficult world, but you have eternal life. And nothing can stop you. How good's that? I recently read that Martin Luther, the great reformer, had scratched the word vivid into his desk. And vivid means alive or he's alive. The story behind that was that um, his wife, uh, Luther was going through a particularly bad time and he was moping around the house and his wife Katrina, uh, Katarina, said to him, God is dead. And he said, what? God is not dead. And she said, well, the way you're acting, you'd think he was. And so he went and he scratched vivid into his desk so that every day as he sat down to do his work, he would be reminded of the great truth in history, that Jesus is God the Saviour. Uh, Jesus, God the Creator, became God the Saviour and he is alive. And our world has lost sight of that truth. The question is, have you? It's easy to, isn't it? It's easy to when you get knocked down and stand up again, you get knocked down and stand up again. There's a young woman uh, we know who went to uni, uh, she got married, she went from one to two to three to four to five autoimmune disorders and marriage fell apart and she started to doubt God. What helped her come back was being reminded that Jesus is God and that he's the saviour. Have you allowed the confusion in your world, your culture, to dis distract you from the truth about Jesus? To cause you to lose heart and so lose endurance? To lose conviction and so lose uh, patience? Has it sapped your assurance so that you have lost your joy? Who or what has your attention? You have the truth. Don't be distracted from it. You know, Paul wrote this letter from prison. You wouldn't know it, would you? Um, he could speak of endurance and patience and joy in prison. Why? Because he knew that Jesus was his creator and his saviour. And for us, knowing and understanding, believing what one Col Colossians 1, 15 to 20 says, I think it would help us say, with gusto, with conviction, what Paul says, and I'll finish with this at the end of Romans 8. He says, uh, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither the height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Remember what you know, remember who you know. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, at the end of your word, you remind us that you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power because you're a creator. And you also remind us that Jesus was worthy to take the scrolls. He was worthy of glory and honour because he ransomed us for God. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it is truth lodged in history. We can depend on it. Please, Lord, keep our noses in your word. Keep us on our knees, turning to you. Help us to encourage one another to turn to you, to remember who we know and what we know. Please strengthen us in this belief. And, Lord, as we leave here today, may we take that endurance, that patience, that joy with us that comes from knowing you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.